You can start, Graham. I see we haven't got a full house. I'm sure Richard would have managed one, but we'll give you a much better <laughs> lecture. Um, as, as you probably realise, Ivan and I don't really get out much. Um, but the purpose of being able to speak this evening was um, whilst we were composing a website, actually, for the office. And um, it's like 35 years of the practice's history. And there's quite a lot of quite diverse work within that. And there's not really a common aesthetic that runs through it. So what we tried to do is identify some key themes. And these key themes are effectively how we interrogate work. And that can happen at both the initial design stages, but also throughout its whole development and construction. I mean, it's not a rule book, is it? It's not like we do it like this. But there are areas of concern that um, actually begin to shape what we're trying to do. And it acts as a kind of, I suppose it is a DNA. It's, there's a thread of thinking that runs through. But you can actually begin to see, as you, if you wish to look at the work any further, you can begin to see that these themes become quite, quite strong. They, they run through at quite a grassroots level. And um, so we thought we'd attempt to structure it. <laughs> As, as just introducing those six themes and, um, and then just running through some work relatively conversationally. And hopefully it might trigger a few questions from yourselves. I hope so. And um, to see, see how it goes. We haven't done this before, so it's, if we're a bit blundery, please forgive us. Um, and I like to call them brushes, actually, ho hoping to be seen as an artist. But um, I think, as Graham says, these various brushes that we we use to create the architecture that are, that, and which you can paint in a number of different ways um, and the first of those these are no particular order of course um, the first of those might be um, the idea of city and context and I think the most important thing to say here and clearly um, spanning all those years it's um, something that's preoccupied the practice and and, and us of course um, the notion that all of our architectural responses are context-driven. You know, we don't have universal solutions. Actually, we, you know, we're problem solvers. What we like to do is res and respond in the first instance to this context. What does the context give us? Whether it's an urban context, whether it's good old brownfield site, or even in some cases where there are rural contexts. Um, and you'll see these as we show you various projects um, later on. The next part is, is obviously something which runs through quite fundamentally what the practice is about. It's the nature of public realm and our responsibility towards creating that public realm. It may take its form in master plans where one's trying to create clear spaces. It may take the whole nature of what spaces are related to public buildings. But also, how do private buildings, how do they actually inform both the ground levels, but also the nature of what the buildings are. We do tend to see these, these buildings as they're all public realm. Everything is visible. I'm using Pompidou here as an example of the, the vertical piazza. These are ways in which one can create the dynamism of people watching people. I mean, this, this one has to have been probably around the longest, the notion of flexibility. And I think... Um, What's fascinating about it is it gives you, it's sort of rather mundane, this notion that um, actually 
within a relatively inverted commas boring plan actually we're creating something which is trying to deal with what we all know and that is that the future is uncertain a case such as t5 which is a project developed over many 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 years before it even got to site of course it was even uncertain during that process and so the idea of um, schemes which have um, this inherent um, it's we use the term loosely flexibility, this ability to develop both through the design process and into the future is um, a clearly fundamental thing. But along with that goes the, uh, the ideas of making very clear the parts which are um, the parts which are flexible, the parts which maybe are more static. And Graham will always complain that you know he only gets the, the, the static bit, the, sorry the flexible bits and I get the, the static bits, the fun bits. But in, in all instances, they, they're coming from um, this concept of working with um, notions of, I guess it's a simplicity and, and understanding straightforward pieces of space and identity of, of space and understanding of, of space. This section's legibility. This is one of the, the strongest aspects of curriculum and so for us, which is to do with what is a building trying to say and what is its language. What is it? And in many instances, it may be about the legibility of primary components at a macro scale. It may be related to a Lockhart. It may be related to a simple expression of served and servant. But also, it's actually related to the nature of the pieces, how they're made. How do they actually reinforce the concept? And actually, what are they communicating about themselves? This may be at the very, very detailed level, and also at the very, very generic global level. It's very, very um, central to what it is we're trying to say, really. I suppose that's what language is. It's not a decorative applique. It's how does something express its very essence through all of its constituent parts. Okay, the, the notion of um, concerns of, of energy, um, whether it be... In Sustainability, how how we use our natural resources is, is you know, it's very, or it's been current probably in the in the the, the broader envi architectural environment probably for more than ten years now. But um, so you could regard this as one of the newer brushes. Um, I think the point with this is that I think all of our projects now we start off on a notion of being able to or uh, trying to persuade, and this is a it's very client related. Thing, which is what you all know is how persuading a client to engage with concepts of making a building more sustainable than than um, than it otherwise might be legislation is now pushing us in that direction um, but as the the slide shows um, even you know and Lloyds of London in, in those days actually those issues were already being addressed um, and then we can get perhaps to I think certainly my ultimate involvement in that, and one hopes we can go even further with Klaus um, Boder at BDSP, um, what we're doing in the National Assembly for Wales, where we've got a client which is highly committed through legislation, thank God, to produce something which is genuinely um, um, more sustainable than that which has come before. This next section is um, teamwork. Over at Rainville Road, we're not an island. The importance of client teams, consultant teams, manufacturing teams, contracting teams. 
are actually all of the areas that actually inform what it is we're trying to assist in creating. I think the um, I think in many instances um, this notion that we create an object and then we force it through all processes. I don't think we would begin to survive. It's very much about being refreshed by all of these outside bodies. It's ideas that are introduced that you don't even know exist. And they're things that begin to actually inform where you may be wishing to go conceptually, and then also how one begins to develop it beyond that. I think, in a way, many of these things trigger our whole notion of how we work with manufacturers. It's, it's very much a suggestion. It's not forced, we want it like this. It's being able to immerse yourself in all of the forces that actually inform architecture, to be able to move to places where perhaps you wouldn't necessarily have initially considered. Um, <clears throat> the idea now is we'll do, we'll do a little bit on this, and then Graham will do a bit, and then I'll read up the next bit, and so on. Um, this is part of an old project. Um, it's 1992. Um, I guess for, um, for me, sort of the beginning of a whole um, series of projects that have, I suppose you could loosely say, have used timber. <laughs> It's quite interesting to see how did we come, how did that come about. Um, the original um, concept for this building, Amo Kelsey and I were at the time working on the Court of Human Rights at Strasbourg, and Richard saying, "You'll never get away with a curved building; you'll regret it." Um, it was a difficult building. Um, I think I was only 27 at the time. I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, we went to Bordeaux and I said, you know, we've just got to make it rectilinear. You know, we, you know, we, we really had so many problems um, um, with this, this, this thing we have in, in hand at the moment. Let's just do a box. And so that's how it, it, it began. And Amo's ugly sketch here on the, on the left. Um, the box, obviously the brief is a, a brief which, um, wasn't, funny enough, rather grim, really, a courthouse. Um, very, um, um, very straightforward, nothing really exciting, apart from a thing called a sound de papel du, literally a loom, room of lost footsteps. Um, itself rather odd name. And we really pulled the brief apart try, and tried to understand whether there was anything that could make this more than um, just a, a straightforward box. There was no daylighting requirement for the what we thought were the sort of important spaces, which might be your um, courtrooms. Um, and so the concept of putting um, um, the concept of putting these containers in the box that Graham had been looking at um, at a Tokyo Forum a couple of years earlier. And the notion that um, these elements would then somehow provide the architecture. We had no idea what they were, even at the competition stage. This is a competition sort of sketch, which is a bit of Strasbourg. It's a bit of, you know, it's, it, it, it's what you're working on. You're gathering information from um, what, you're, what your understanding is at the time. This um, developed into something which was being formed rather mundanely by the fact that a very straightforward, flexible office block um, wanted to get a fantastic view of the cathedral. 
Um, and so we felt we, we needed to really manipulate these spaces to, um, to get a view through them. Um, and at the same time, to get light in to the top of them, this notion of sort of daylight. At that time, again, I think we went through everything from carbon fiber through ferro-cement. No real notion exactly on, on how we would build these things. We had um, a tender which lasted, we actually we had to tender twice. The, the first time it, it just was way over budget. And the second time a small company came along who decided that um, they couldn't meet us until, until July. And, and this was about May. So we held on for the meeting. They were doing archaeology on the site, it was lucky. And a young guy came in with his father. And the reason you, they couldn't have the meeting is the young guy is still at school. He's doing his O-levels at baccalaureate. And this is a small um, company in rather interesting offices in the foothills of the Alps, near Ancy, um, where by the son basically was the brains and the father had the company. And the son could tell him what he was able to do. Um, he created um, the geometry and, the, and therefore the, the methodology of how you could build this element. Um, he was 16, it's not bad. <laughs> he actually came to work with us for a few summers um, when, he, when he passed his A equivalent to A-levels. Um, apparently he's now head um, um, programmer at Dassault Engineering. So he's pretty progressive. Um, but this was a remarkable, and this is, I'm talking about teamwork here. So these are images we don't usually show. This is about teamwork. Here we've got a family firm working, a knowledge of material, a knowledge of um, spreading from the computer age. So um, very complex cutting machines that allow the form to be made um, to, in fact, the artisan on site. So you, from 16 to 60, you've got this extraordinary coming together of ability um, um, spanning, as I say, from the computer to the hammer. Um, and you know, these shots show it's almost medieval feeling of construction, such that the, um, another anecdote, it's always full of anecdotes, uh, uh, such that the health and safety um, executive refused the scaffolding because it wasn't steel. But of course, you know, these, things, you know, these guys worked in timber, so scaffolding had to be timber. In it. But quite an extraordinary um, process. This, um, this project is, uh, as you can see, it's a very, very simple office building. It's one of these things where we, it took probably 10 years from when we first won the competition to constructing it. Originally, it was a headquarters building. And it went quiet for a few years. And then eventually, we were told that we needed to nearly half the budget and increase the area by a third and that we would be going down a design and build route. And to be honest, you just thought, it can only get better, really. I mean, the people who were working on it at the time was, what do we do with this? And in a way, it's, perhaps it makes you reinvestigate a little bit of what is possibly inherent in buildings. How can one pare something down to the leanest elemental pieces to be able to actually, again, allow it to express itself clearly. It's 88 Wood Street. What we had was really just floor plate. These things are like super tankers. 
just masses of uniform space. There's always the danger of working with office buildings is that before you even begin, the solution's already there. The core's in the middle, and you can manipulate a few of the edges and give this super tanker a few manners and sit it into a public realm. For us, we were actually trying to see, well, what were those key components? Obviously, following from Lloyds of London, but on a budget that was probably about 25% of that. And in a way, it evolved as, it started as three separate buildings. You can see the way it began to respond to uh, Wood Street and began to step in three simple sections up to the taller buildings on London Wall. It started as three buildings with atria between. First discussions we had with all the agents just said, what's that? I said, it's an atrium. What's it doing there? It's to bring daylight to the offices. He said, get rid of it. It gets in the way. And <laughs> these are terrifying moments, actually. So to some extent, it was to see what we could do with this. And you can see that all of this is the occupied area. It's triple glazed. It's all the thermally well-controlled environments. It has an automated blind system. We've never done just a double glazed wall of offices, only on north sides. We're always taken to different kind of energy responses. And then all of, the, um, all of the firefighting calls positioned on the outside allows them to be naturally ventilated. If you've ever come across stair pressurization, these are hidden costs. They're things that you will have the whole nature of the facade ripped to pieces, financing aspects which actually are not necessarily needed. All of the staircases, <coughs> lifts, all naturally ventilated using controls from below and above. And it allowed us to be able to actually create certain levels of transparency. It's like a jellyfish watch, really. I think that's how we used to describe it. It's the swatch watch where you can see all of the workings to see how we might be able to explore what language we could achieve within that. And what happens is also about the nature of its public realm, a private building that is offering nothing to the public. There's no public space, there's no activity. What we were trying to do was to say that the whole of the ground level became glazed. And if you ever go there, it's planted inside and outside. It's a kind of visual amenity that gives depth to the street. But the principle is that it begins to actually allow the public to begin to have other glimpses into a private world. And you can see it's all just basically self-finished. Everything is concrete, glass or steel. As you move through, I mean, what we were trying to explore here with a speculative office building, you can't control the spaces. We didn't even get the fit out. And to some extent, it was, well, what are the areas of these types of buildings where people meet and bump into each other? Where do they get glimpses outside? When can people outside see people moving inside? So the whole nature of the public realm is really about the social spaces, being able to move through the nature of lifts, we always talk about this as a trip to the Science Museum. This is all the technology that exists in buildings. And actually some of it's beautiful. Some of these, some of these areas is watchmaking. The nature of how our team works with manufacturers, down to a point where we were having lifts moved halfway down, lift shafts in Croydon with Mitsubishi, making paper templates of areas that we couldn't make being able to actually explore which parts could be possibly visible and which parts were impossible. And um, the nature of us, we always talk about the humble brick. This is the humble stair. It's, um, 
it's the nature of a very, very simple animal. <coughs> These things are not just, you know, we don't just stick stairs on the outside because that's the nature of what we do. You'll see that Mudud Airport, kilometre long, doesn't have one external stair in it. It's actually more about how one's trying to inform and create natural interruption in very, very large-scale buildings. I mean, these discussions here in terms of how this whole thing is like a big wind sail, how it's tied back, holding this column in place. A particular chap, Mark Hallett, in our office worked and developed this with, with, um, with a ch uh, chap called Dante Giacomelli. It's just, sometimes I used to go into these meetings just to see how it was going on, and it's like, woo, just go out of there. <laughs> just go out of there. The intensity of effort at this level it's actually quite humbling, really. Here you can see how each of these simple elements begin to manifest themselves. We're always saying these are super tankers. How do you give it manners? How do you give it logical and intelligent methods of disrupting and organizing itself without resorting to decorative motif? You can see the way that the building is stabilized. You can actually see how people move and how the towers begin to actually interrupt and fragment the form so that one is not reading these big apologetic puddings. It's actually something that can begin to coexist. We've seen people moving up and down, dialoguing the public realm and the private realm. This is another design and build job. Um, I'm, just, I'm going to concentrate actually on the, on the environment and energy. Um, this is the National Assembly for Wales, um, almost complete. In fact, I think they're, they're going to be occupying I think, in the new year. Um, this is a fantastic brief for an architect, isn't it? What, we were so lucky to win this one. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's taken a long time, but it's, a, it's about engaging people, um, engaging uh, into, you know, we know that I think only just, they only just voted for devolution in Wales. So how do you engage the people of Wales? Is it, can architecture contribute to that? Um, and so this scheme is very much about, I mean, literal transparency, I guess, um, trying to bring the sort of democratic process, render it more sort of intellectually visible. Um, this image, um, this was done for our third client. Um, and this was an image which says, um, this is a, it was a small building. He said, it's a small building. Um, it's going to be insignificant. He, he didn't want to do the building. Um, we said, no, no, it's a big building. Because when you're on the ground, um, wandering around um, the Cardiff Bay, actually, it will be the biggest building there because it's got this enormous, great canopy, which is all about bringing in the public. This canopy... Um, we, want, we were very clear, and in fact, the assembly were mandated as part of um, the devolution to, um, towards, um, uh, to promote sustainable design. And the building came with a, a sort of 100-year um, lifetime um, re requirement, um, along with other things like indigenous materials, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we felt that in that process that we you know we really had to look as forward as far as we could in terms of how we responded with the environment the, this um, beautiful drawing by um, DDSP um, shows how the building is broken down such that 
the majority of it actually is really it's just outside it's ventilated um, and perhaps some it has some minor heating in the winter but it's a very fluctuating space now with a client it is fascinating because you get given a, a sort of small brief and then you get given a big pile of documents which is called the um, the, the office standards for government buildings, which if you read it basically means you've got to do a concrete box with a few small windows, temperature plus 21 degrees plus or minus two. Um, it took us a couple of years to convince um, them, and in fact involved finding sort of obscure European legislation which suggested that there was, that someone, someone somewhere else um, had uh, approved, um, and this is always an issue with, um, I think, government clients with bureaucrats is it's about decision making someone had made a decision somewhere else that allowed us to um, to um, go forward and suggest that the spaces may not be quite as um, well controlled as um, they wanted in their big thick document so the building's all about um, all about ventilating we'll pick up the wrong one again uh, all about um, using this big public space it's a very Deep building. The roof is 72 meters by um, 40 meters, and, and there's a space here for the public, um, and a space down here for the um, elected uh, um, electorate on top of the elected, which is of course very important. Um, and this space is really this is a, a space that uh, mediates between outside and inside, and so all of the spaces in the building use this as a sort of reservoir um, 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 for their ventilation and for and also for their daylighting. Um, so the whole the, the, the project is about controlling controlling that daylighting to ensure that this box, which is single glazed, we didn't want failed double glazed units in a hundred years' time. I mean, again, seeing how government buildings are maintained, it's important that single glazed, not just Klaus's um, chagrin. It was something um, that we had insisted on, and the building was designed around that, and so. How we respond to that, we've even got louvers on the northwest side, which is strange, but actually the sun does come in on that side. Um, looking at a couple of uh, the debating chamber, which is the heart of the building, um, I have to apologize for some of the photos because it's not finished. We don't have professional ones as yet. But the debating chamber is a mixed mode space. Um, providing they don't talk too much. Um, the, it's naturally ventilated from um, a, a sort of plenum below ground, so it's already using the mass of the building to cool that plenum. And, and then and the natural stack effect driven by heat up here and also wind through um, a rotating, um, um, a free rotating wind cow, of course, claimed to be um, Europe's biggest free rotating wind cow. I don't know whether it is, but it, that's certainly the claim. Um, it also, of course, it needs backup, and the backup is, is air conditioning if it gets hot and <coughs> sweaty in there. But the important thing about that is we've looked to um, how do we provide hot and cold for those systems. And in broad terms, the, 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 they come from heat exchangers, ground earth heat exchangers, so it's playing around with the ground temperature immediately under the building over the year cycle, and also burning... Um, um, thin sticks, so um, um, it's a wood-burning stove um, where they collect driftwood from Cardiff Bay uh, and put it into a boiler to, to heat the building. 
Um, lighting, a similar thing. We wanted daylighting. And again, from um, the experience in Bordeaux, we're very keen and the, the qualities of light there. Big battles um, with Klaus Boder again about trying to get, we wanted sunlight in there, but of course he wants to keep it out. I'd just like to say, Klaus, that there is sun in there very occasionally. We've seen it. So despite the massive amounts of, 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 of modeling done, um, we still get a bit of humanism in the building, which is great. Um, this is about reflecting daylight as well. Uh, with a big cowl up here, the, the, the room doesn't see the sky. Um, the sky, that, that vertical component is the component you need. And so here we put in this um, sort of disco ball, um, which bounces light into the space. Um, it's quite fun because you can lower it down to reduce the, um, um, reduce the amount of light if they want to show um, um, slides and what have you as we're doing here. And you can also bring it all the way down to polish it. And one hopes that like a chandelier, it's polished every day. And that's what it's look like looking up that, um, up that space. Aluminium tubes coming here, they represent the roof flowing into the, into the space below. So we've almost conceptually taken the roof surface in. And then seeing this um, in, in context, um, this is this, this gr great um, um, bell. These, there's a conical glass screen here to a viewing gallery. Conical, that's the post 9-11 screen. Um, one of the advantages or disadvantages in this instance, and this used to be open, um, we had the, the famous stop-start nature of the project is this appeared um, during stop time. So when we restarted, we had to introduce it. But it's all done with um, low iron glass um, and rather beautiful suspended piece. Um, just again, it is about light and it's about transparency. Um, and actually, um, here we chose specifically to play up the notion of the two materials. Um, the concept of the building is, is very clear. It's about playing with the sky plane, the view out from the site to the bay, about playing with the sky plane and the ground plane. And so we have the timber sky plane. Wonderful funnel. I don't think we're going to do timber again. It was pretty complicated. And the slate ground plane. And so it really is a building of two materials and a roof, a great roof held up on 12 um, piloti, um, held in place by guy ropes. I think um, th this is the headquarters for Lloyd's Register. It's just three slides, four slides. Um, to some extent, these are more about just introducing you to, to some notions of what perhaps informs how it looks. And office buildings do tend to be uh, probably the most unloved building types. But I'd like to say that Susan and I were married here four, four months ago today. And there are actually aspects of this which are actually quite almost Elizabethan in terms of the impact of just pure expression of functional pieces. We always describe this as an Alice in Wonderland view, where you walk around through Edwardian facades and you get a glimpse into something that's quite other behind the formation of a very simple courtyard with two mature trees, which actually then begins to signal primarily how the building, how one circulates through the building. It's the worst site on earth I've ever worked on, I have to be honest. It's completely surrounded by buildings. There's listed buildings across here, party walls, party walls, party walls. You can see it's just a big system of slightly fanning floor plates that just fill the whole site. 
very, very simple primary circulation, secondary support cause. And you can begin to see this object emerging from an existing rind of buildings where you can begin to see a certain clarity in terms of you certainly know where you're circulating through this very, very large hidden complex. We see here in terms of, as Ivan was talking about, natural ventilation or passive means, this is a city building. In many instances, there are levels of toxicity which actually rule that out in this case. But it still means that we can actually end towards controlling and reducing the amount of buildings of this type, which just through their occupancy levels are in permanent cooling mode. And this begins to show a series of shutters, which perhaps some of you have seen, some not. But they're effectively um, an automatic blind control system. This was developed as a, within a blind control system, which you see here, which was also developed at the same time as Wood Street. The principle being that when sun is incident on a facade, photocells will then trigger the blind control system to put this into 45 degrees which means that when sun is incident on that facade, it provides 90% of solar, uh, solar protection from sun's rays. If one was to do that with something like a heavy body tint glass, you'd be talking about a glass for a short period of the year that would be 90% opaque. So the notion of doing a glazed building is, is actually redundant because then you have to switch all the lights on because as you can see from these little graphs, or you're probably not, but being a train spotter, these things are only active in that 45 degree mode in our climate 20% of the year. So it's very much to do with being able to control the incidence of sunlight into buildings, which then allowed us to begin to explore what the internal environment, it meant that we could actually go for, well, consider what was called a chill beam, I have to be honest, when Arabs first suggested it to us, I'd heard of chill ceilings, but I really didn't know what a chill beam was. It's, I'm trying to convince Lloyd's Register to build a £75 million building with these things. It's actually something which is a, a fee in itself. It's essentially, it's essentially something which, through whatever as a CFD analysis one creates, one still has to create mock-ups and prototypes and you can see the nature of this fully integrated um, lighting sounders controls and the turning vanes to induce mixing for something that actually could only be explored at the detailed manufacture uh, detailed manufacture stages i just put these up just to really ask questions in terms of when did buildings become these slick, easily hosed down facades. This is just the nature of this depth of facade, just pure expression of what is serviced, what services it, the single glazing, being able to really start to give some sense of depth and intrigue to what is actually essentially a very ordinary building. airport uh, in Madrid, um, an enormous building, um, 
and an interesting history. We were sort of reluctant participants in uh, a competition. Um, and this little diagram here, I suppose, represents, it wasn't done at the competition, but just represents really what the building's about. On the, on the left-hand side, there are, are two boxes, and those represent um, um, an airport, your typical airport, um, T5 even. Um, where upstairs, which is on the top, oh, use my pointer. Upstairs is all about departures. So the, the process of um, departure, so drop off, check in, security, departure. And then downstairs, a very dark box, which is about arrival, um, baggage, passports, and um, being picked up. Um, when we did this competition in 97, I guess it was, 96, 97, um, we pulled Marcus Lee back from T5. He's done a long stint there. And we really said, Marcus, come on, what's the best, um, what's the best scheme you've come up with so far? Um, and I think it was actually, it was one we knew about. We all loved it conceptually, which was if you started to pull these boxes apart, you had the ability, perhaps, to make to get to experience the daylight which is usually you know where all the effort spent up here actually through the whole of the process and find a way also in terms of the legibility of the building to make it more understandable and easy to find your way i mean we're ne we'll never emulate grand central that's for sure but the building is about light and it's about under movement and about understanding that your position in the process and it's been a fantastic um, um, thing in the speed of its delivery that in it has allowed this very straightforward concept to hold true through to construction and even i'm able to report the with the fitting out of things like retail this it, it's the, the the retailers are being inspired by the space of course here we've got a much much um, bigger space than bigger site, I say, than um, Terminal 5. And fortunately, the public inquiry was done before they launched the competition. Good idea, I think. Um, the, it's allowed us to be quite generous about um, of how we've um, developed the, the, the sort of dynamic and developed the space. Great thing about this building, this is 1.2 kilometers from here to here. Three times 400 meters, 400 meters, as Marcus will tell you, is the maximum walking distance and you can do before you have to make a turn left or right, <laughs> something like that. Um, but this is um, the total thing. This is only half of it. There's another one, almost the same length, about two kilometers that way. It's, that's the satellite. In total, there's about one and a half million square meters of construction. And it goes down into the ground. It was like Valley of the Kings. It goes down into the ground 25 meters at its depth, just cut in soft sandstone. We were told during the competition, just keep it underground. It's very cheap to dig holes. And we said, no, we don't believe you. But actually, it is cheap. Um, but this whole building, we had to develop in... Um, a very short period of time. I think it was nine months to do all of the um, construction drawings. Um, and it was, it really is classic kit of parts. I mean, th there are, those are the components and they're repeated everywhere. 
And what's wonderful about it is the relationship between this component, which is a constant, and these components, which are um, a, where you appropriate height and space and, and depth dependent upon which bar in that little diagram you saw previously. Those components give it extraordinary, um, an extraordinary range of spaces as you move through the scheme. This, is, this gives you an idea of the scale, uh, the color. Yes, the color is, um, we were, I've been working on the, um, the Minami Yamashiro um, project, and uh, we were called down into to Baracus to talk about color. And of course, architects choose the color in Spain. So we had a series of mock-ups, this color and that color. And um, the client kept saying, oh, no, you can't use this color because that's such and such a connotation. And you can't use this color. Of course, um, but you can have white, silver, black, perhaps. And so we didn't want. We wanted something warm. We wanted warmth in this airport. And so we suggest. We just sort of jokingly said, "Well, what about every color?" And so um, there we have. We've got every color. <laughs> and it's a sort of wayfinding thing. Don't ask me what happens as these colors fade at different rates. But I guess internally they'll stay. Maybe they'll keep it up. But as you move through, this is a very early competition sketch, which picks up the notion of these canyons of light, but the continuity of a surface above and the connection of a surface above um, with um, the competition model, showing you how those spaces change as you move through this flowing space. And the reality, these again, with these standard components every time, appearing every time, creating a, a whole different um, a sequence of, of space. It really is an extraordinary airport, and I'm, you know, do go on holiday to Spain next year because uh, <laughs> it's great. It's great, and I really don't think they will destroy it. Um, um, it sits in the landscape. Actually, it's a beautiful thing that doesn't come across with these images. But you approach it through landscape, which was chopped, and so you almost come in at roof level. And in fact, the roof of the car park is. Is, is all um, planted, so you, you come across the top of it and flow down into it. A view the other way, I mean, it's an extraordinary sort of, again, the ebb and the flow of the roof is part of this sort of dynamic of, of movement, but again, the clarity and the repetition, the kit of parts. Yeah, no, we were 20 minutes late anyway. So I'm reading another 20 minutes. Okay. Um, Can you hang on? 20 minutes. Yeah, sorry, no, we just know. You know, we've got thousands of slides here. We just don't want to end up boring you all to death. But um, it's, um, I mean, this this is a project we did, which was the start of 21st century in 2000. And um, it actually represents a kind of concern that the practice has had for, ooh, for 20 odd years. And uh, its lineage starts from the National Gallery Competition which was probably about 24, 25 years ago. It also runs through other ideas of when we did a Tokyo Forum competition. And it's the concern of um, a Congress Center and how does one actually integrate a Congress Center, which is essentially a blind facility into a city context. And these areas here are really showing the notion of just about 250 meters long. The idea of creating this big flexible container, which is top lit, column free, 
as a canopy. And then being able to define a ground plane which could keep all of the 24-hour activities, the public side of the Congress Centre, the served area, the servant areas, being able to allow that to dialogue with the rest of the city context. And then that is oversailed with one great big flexible multi-space hall. What manifests itself as two simple gestures, the notion of the, the roof line and the incline ground plane, and which if you actually look through, this is thinking around the Welsh Assembly time, these are very, very similar thoughts of actually the contrast and the tension between roof and ground. These are just notions of how it could systemize itself. You can see here the whole nature of the profile, where this is the top lit areas, these are all of the support activities, the toilets, all the various kind of support areas to the hall itself. And then all of the travelators that take you up from this big incline ground mass, which runs all the way through, which picks up all of the travertine, similar on this, I should have added, which you can see here is really about manipulated ground plane under which we sit the great roof. You can see on the lower levels across here, there's a whole series of arcades that are formed within the ground mass that allows us to place all of the restaurants, retail, meeting rooms, all of the things that kind of add a buzz that can be used from lots of facilities, uh, lots of air, um, users that are not necessarily using this, which is set up 12 times a year. begin to see the whole nature of how this begins to manifest itself in this great big kind of aircraft carrier. And then the nature of the whole of the reception areas is this vast space. The whole idea of being able to set up a set up exhibition, exhibition, and it's just a public promenade, began to define what we felt were clear distillations between what was the public and private realm. The reason this sloped was effectively so that when they set up the halls, it just the trucks drive up and set up into that hall. The whole idea is like a macro villa savoir, where the curved form under the box is based on a turning radius of a car. This is a big perforate hotel. <laughs> and actually these things just drive up when they're setting up the exhibitions. But the whole nature of this being something which was a perforate object, something where you could see, you could see all the bright yellow under there, all of the supply fans taking air in from the cool source, exhausting at the high level. The idea of promenades where the public could begin to actually get glimpses into these vast spaces and also views overrun. I think the reason we just showed this was the number of competitions we lose. We came second. This is like something which is like, you may as well have been 10, 10 miles away. It's, um, but this, the competition process is very much how we actually test ideas and inform ourselves with ideas. There are aspects of this that have actually appeared since. I think it's very important that we're actually not necessarily just working on particular projects for five years at a time 
and then you go on to the next project. These are actually testing hypotheses and exploring ideas, and it will resurface. This is, um, I call this the, this is the girlfriend scheme. Why is it the girlfriend scheme? Um, the casting vote was the mayor. This is Sabaday, uh, a town um, northwest of Barcelona, a cultural center. Um, we came second. We were in the running with a rather conventional um, response, and the, the casting vote was with the mayor, who allegedly um, stood up and said, if I want a girlfriend, this is what I go for. But if I want a wife, this is what I go for. And no one had the ball to say, you'll, you'll regret never marrying your girlfriend. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't, uh, I didn't just make it up. Um, it was a, I mean, fantastic, fantastic site. Great view from an approach to Sabaday. This big public park already in place. A, a slope. This is about four stories from this point to this point, um, and a great. The idea of creating a great um, um, people space that engaged with the park. Um, it's cultural. It's about music. It's about this big gesture to the um, to the, um, the street and the approach. Um, I noticed that this sort of wavy roof, quite in fashion at the moment. But, um, anyway, what was interesting about this? It was derived from. Well, I went on a site visit. It was, it's stinking hot. I thought, well, they want a public place, but there's no way. So the, the roof was derived of the notion of keeping out the sun in the summer, um, but at the same time, the folds were designed to allow some sunlight to get to the facades of these two buildings. This is a, a, a school, and this is a, um, I say a school, it's a, a music college, and this is a hotel. Um, and so we modulated the roof in order to, to try and get the sunlight on those facades in, in those times. Um, at the back of the building, though, that same form um, formed structure that um, for a big sort of shed, a, a, an exposition shed, in the same way that Graham was descri describing that sort of event. This is uh, the Library of Birmingham. Um, this is one we won. I do wonder whether that was a good thing or a bad thing, really. But um, it was something which was an immensely aspirational brief. I have to build myself up to talk about this. <laughs> this is Birmingham. If you imagine just about here is the boring, the future systems building is just literally about here. This is five minute walk from central Birmingham. Removal of a massive elevated roadway. And this is what is called East Side. And um, I don't know what you think, but it's, uh, it's a bit tough. It's, um, we have, the building, this is a Grimshaw building just here, which is Millennium Point. We have railway line running through on this side here, which comes into New Street Station. We've got quite a sad little park here and a parade ground opposite the Millennium Point there. The library itself was immensely aspirational. We didn't come up with an idea for the design because to some extent, what they were looking for was something way beyond that. It was the notion of kind of activity centers, learning zones, very, very transparent notion of how does a library function? Why is it there? And to some extent, 
what we felt as we began to analyze it is it was almost the inverse of a traditional library where the knowledge begins to enclose the reader. This seemed to suggest something that would suggest that the knowledge acts as its car and all of the reading and activity areas wrap around the perimeter, which meant it was very important for us to design the context of that so that it had something to look out to. It's sitting in the middle of this lot, it's just not really a runner. But you can see conceptually, one thing we have left up there is we created one part. We actually created this big sweeping curve in which we would actually use the library as its focus. We also then, this is the Bullring Future Systems building, we also then began to create a public road, a public street that then connected to a street that ran through Millennium Point, the whole nature of being able to create connectivity. This park could then act as an armature that could begin to pick up lots of routes and begin to structure people into the east side and repairing all of these edges that have just been completely destroyed by the car. You see here, very, very simple, two-story building. It's a big warehouse. It needs to be flexible. It's going to change. It needs to be there forever. It's, it's going to change. But the idea of all of the rolling stacks in the central area, the reading areas looking onto the park, the idea of the park and activities coming through there, creating all of the archives, the street, being able to actually engage with the transparency of people moving past. And then a co-locator building for all the various school of speech and drama that began to shield it from, shield the library from the main <coughs> elevated railway section. We had to draw this because the pub were objecting to what we were proposing. So we had to just say that we weren't demolishing the pub. It's rather nice to have a pub at the end of the street next to the library. And um, just these big petal floors, which begin, you can begin to see the main stacks and all of the various flexible activity areas around it and the street connecting through. Big, long, low roof. Not as long as Baracus, just 250 meters. I don't know what we're playing at sometimes when we're looking at this stuff. But the idea of the street running through, the library acting as a focus to that. The idea of the great park on the roof where people could actually go and have another kind of reading environment. Very little green space in Birmingham. I've never been up there. Too tough, pretty gritty. The idea of the park informing activities at the base of the library and vice versa. These are our diagrams we used at the competition, wasn't it? The knowledge at the core, lots of flexible areas. Our idea of a 21st century library, the traditional, which is actually really using wall space for books. It's evolved as a series of top-lit spaces. That's very impermeable, not necessarily the most inviting of environments. We always had that discussion, didn't we? Everyone said how, because I was at the presentation. Everyone's going, how much they enjoyed working in libraries. I hated it. Absolutely hated it. Then we followed on. We got this next competition, which was for mixed use building. So we were kind of on a roll. And um, what this allowed us to do was to be able to actually define, start defining boundaries of the park that actually there was no policy in Birmingham for keeping that. 
It allowed us to begin to create big roots, structure, structure the, uh, the buildings to be able to farm street edges again. What I like about this, which is where we were leaving it, was this is a diagram of the library. But you don't know which came first. The whole idea of the park sweeping through, you get this echo of it beginning to reverberate back into Birmingham. The nature of continuing the route all the way through and up to Millennium Point. We thought it was starting to generate something of the scale of Nash. It was just a vision for that little area that we showed you earlier. But this is now in doubt. We're having steering groups coming down and interviewing us. But what that does do is then it actually throws into question this. If you're putting a load of four-story business park sheds on the opposite side of the park, this attracts 10,000, this would be talking about attracting 10,000 people a day. It's the busiest library in Europe as it currently is. And the idea of using that as the principle of generating or regenerating an area was quite a brave move by Birmingham. This is something which is, you know, there's more to cities than offices, shops, Starbucks. There's, there are cultural notions that could create a pebble that could begin to reverberate and create a true <laughs> cultural centre. This is, this is the only building I've worked on which wasn't a competition, actually, until recently. Um, yeah, we were approached by Clive Bourne, an old uh, Hackney guy, um, to help out with the, his um, academy um, on the Hackney Downs, North London. I mean, this is really is a, a building about context, city and context. And in a sense, for an architect, it's a great site because it's, 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 it gives an almost immediate response, um, which is, um, press the wrong button again, which is to don't concentrate on these two very noisy railway lines, concentrate on this. It's slightly unfortunate that it's the north, but it's got to be a lot better than looking at this stuff. Um, it was great fun working with the DFES with their standard brief um, for um, a school, and that's based upon basically a box sitting in the middle of a green field in the middle of the home county. So the whole process of developing something of this um, complexity and and earning the, the the money it costs to build something, which you know is can never be as efficient as the box. But it's clearly something that responds um, and is necessary to give um, an equal um, um, service for the children than you might get on this notional greenfield site. So it's a building which is about keeping the noise out, and there's an elevation that keeps the noise out, and about addressing the central space. So there's an, an active elevation, sort of passive elevation, a very simple arrangement of classrooms, um, the relationship to the central space here. It's about cloisters and then space that brings those, um, those various levels together. The headmaster was very keen on it being divided into houses. In fact, some of it's divided into houses, it's some of it's split horizontally. It's quite a flexible thing. And indeed, that's proven in its first year where he's been moving walls around um, something he's never been able to do and he's been doing, he's been teaching for 40 years. So. It's good stuff. So, as I say, it's very clear. 
that's the wall that keeps the, um, the noise out, including some of BDSP's um, ventilators. It's, an, it's a low energy building again, maybe not quite to the extent of the National Assembly. Um, it also is a lesson in operation in, in, in a lot of this is about the way that people deal with these buildings. They're so unused to them. They require the care and attention, more care and attention than you might than simply pressing buttons. But, and then there's a facade that addresses the central space. Um, a few more trees in there now. We're getting money for to, to plant it. But the active space, it's a it's a great school. The kids absolutely love it. And you know, certainly <coughs> emotionally for me, who I lived I lived in the area for fifteen years. I moved away because of the schools. If I'd stayed, my kids would be at the school. The irony. <laughs> We were looking around a school for my daughter just on, on Saturday and it didn't have spaces like this. Um, this shows you the sort of combined area, this top-lit space. Um, we couldn't afford flashy blinds like Graham afforded at LRS, so we put some. <laughs> so it's cafes. Um, this, this is the cloister, a classroom, and uh, a walkway. There are no corridors in this school. The, the headmaster, one of, part of his brief was, he said, 99% of problems in school happen in unowned spaces. And so I don't want any unowned spaces. I think we've done an hour. We're actually yeah. just on an hour. Oh, so we're, we're okay, right we're all right. <laughs> um, this is a little winery in Spain. Um, which I, I don't know how I ended up with it, actually. But I don't, actually, no, which was terrible when I was asked on Spanish TV. They just said, oh, you, you drink beer, don't you? I said, no, no, I like wine. <laughs> it's uh, pretty tricky, but um, you can see it's, uh, it's in Peñafiel. It's in northern Spain. And um, it's, um, this is quite a rural, rural area, the Duero region. And... Um, this is Peñafiel. There's this amazing castle, and it's a wine museum up there, and it just sticks out in this immense flat landscape. And the view from there is our site here. And it's quite interesting, because trying to understand the nature of winemaking, it took a, it took a while for me, obviously, um, was that this, in this hillside, it's just riddled with tunnels where uh, Protoss, who are the, our client for, for this project, have where they store an aged wine. And you can see all of these little things here, these little creatures, which are actually vent holes down to the base of where all of these tunnels are placed. And they're used to open up air and to be able to keep all the casks in particular conditions. This was Caesar Martinel. This is actually a lovely image. It's a winery, very Catalan, in terms of its arches. You see all the nature of the vats below here. We felt that this wasn't the kind of place to kind of go King Kong. It was something which was trying to place quite a large facility just onto the edge of town. We went through quite a number of processes. These were symbols of part of the report, which was, we started to realize that 
there were many different ways in which this was a gravity system. There were many different ways in which wine is produced. And when one looks at all of the bodegas in, in Spain, you get these little kind of almost hacienda-type facades where the offices and the entertainment areas are. And then you get all these sheds behind where barrels are stored above ground with air handling units, you know, that just fill this room, blowing their brains out, trying to keep it cool in an environment that actually they've been producing wine for centuries. And our initial brief was something similar. And um, in a way, I suppose we felt that this should be about flexibility, a big shed. You can see here the nature of a new ground plane, which runs through here. Massive storage of barrels and bottles. And then a whole series of timber arches. These are spanning about 18 meters over the whole of the fermentation areas. This begins to um, show you the nature of the ground plane. All of the walls are all formed in, from stone, a quarry that's about two kilometers away. The whole nature of using terracotta to begin to actually stitch into all of the existing buildings. This little secret garden here is really an area for people to, it's next to the wine tasting area where they need to be able to see into the cellars and not move things around, but are able to actually then check color and daylight. But also because it's a little town, it's an amazingly festive event to the, the harvest twice a year. And all of these tractors and carts come up. And the idea is it becomes quite a festival. You know, we're placing this big blind facility in town and the idea of this big south-facing canopy that just allows people to all build up. They can see chaps working in all of these. It's an idea of demystifying also the process of winemaking. People could see all of those activities over that period. And again, just a big, simple triangular box below ground these little roofs bouncing above. Then you realize it's not that small. This is it under construction. This is a 12 meter deep basement and um, you can see the formation of the garden. This ellipse, actually, when you come out into the wine tasting area, just <coughs> begins to frame a view of the castle that's actually on their label. All of these, these are just acres of precast concrete ready for the basement areas, all south of Madrid, all on their way up to be placed in this big box. The next stage is all of the timber construction. It's entirely timber. I think they were quite relieved. I mean, they took us on board, we hope for our thinking, but I think they always were looking at what we're doing at the bullring, thinking, ooh. And you know, this, this is not a sophisticated environment, but one of the things we felt was the whole nature of how we could begin to simply express timber. We have to use stainless steel because of the temperatures and weird environments in there. To be able to just build up this very simple arrangement of arches, but it begins to create something where you can see all of the nature of its construction peeled back. It's saying something about the way it's made. This is another school, um, Minami Yamashiro. Um, it's a small village um, in the Kyoto prefecture um, in Japan. 
It's a project that took nine years to get to complete. Um, six of those were politics. Um, it was a very flexible building. It got squeezed over the time um, to what I'll show you here. It's, um, it, it comes after actually doing a build, another building in Japan where we sort of we were aiming to sort of fit into the, the, the hillside, um, which was a pretty difficult thing to do. Um, and this one, we took the opposite view, which was let's perch the building um, such that we could create the sort of spaces that schools need, you know, a running track. It's very clear this part of Japan is, is very mountainous and the valuable land is the flat land and it's all given over to agriculture. So the land you get left are the hills. This is, for an architect, is great. You know, you can play with this amazing um, 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 topography. And you only have to look at the contours there to see how um, the building sits. It's a rather sad story, actually, because it came to us again through a competition, um, but it comes about through um, decline in rural population. In fact, five villages realized that um, you know, they just couldn't sustain the, the schools they had. These are primary schools. And so they had the idea to bring all onto one site the provision for education from the cradle to the grave. Um, in this whole area. So we did a master plan. It's very unusual for Japan. It's very, I suppose we could see it as more normal in Europe, this notion of the school also as a community and place. And so the master plan includes the school, which works, it's a, it's a primary school, but also it does adult education. There's a school hall, but that school hall also functions as a community hall for the community. There's a kindergarten on this site, and um, a, an old, an old so-called old people's home or whatever on, on this site here. Unfortunately, we didn't do these two, which is a shame, but we, we did this one. It's, I think it's rather nice. It is basically a shed, um, a shed with north lights. Um, funnily enough, the, one, the, the major part of the brief was it, the, the building must have a pitched roof because of the high degree of snowfall in this area. So the competition submission had to have a pitched roof. Um, you can imagine <laughs> a pitched roof. You know, what on earth is there? <laughs> um, so this was the, really the nearest we, we, we got to it. Um, and it is a building. As I say, it's a great shed, but with fantastic views. I mean, this isn't about, this is the, um, this was taken just after finishing. So hopefully now it's full of um, art. This is the sculpture terrace. It's not a bad view from a sculpture terrace for seven, eight-year-olds. And it's a building which, again, I love Japan. You can put concrete anywhere. There's no, it, the winters are so dry, there's no cold bridging problems with concrete. So you can do things you simply can't do in Europe. Um, so what you see is what you get. <laughs> concrete is concrete. Um, um, it's, this is a very cheap building. This cost to build per square meter 50% of Mossbourne Academy. So, you know, and Japan's not cheap. But it's a building which has amazing variation through a sort of rather a very simple, very repetitive um, um, constructional system. And again, with great qualities of light. But as I say, a very flexible sort of approach. It has a big scale, which you saw in the previous slide, and also a children's scale. There's a little corridor here, and it 
I graze my hair here. It's, it's about 100 meters long, and it's absolutely perfect for the kids. It's a very human place. But it has big impact. And as a symbol for the, for the, for the village and, and the neighboring villages, it's become a real icon. I had, at the opening, I had um, a villager come up to me actually crying, saying, you know, if only she was a child again. You know, this was, you know, <laughs> she was <laughs> willing herself. But I said, you can go to school here. You know, this is all ages. It was a wonderful opportunity. And I think quite unique. This is probably um, probably our next our next building in London, which we're just now beginning to proceed into the next stage of detailed design. It's uh, it's our Leadenhall Tower, and um, quick, I'm skimming, but it's opposite Lloyd's of London, surrounded completely by conservation areas listed buildings, and also the south of the site, actually if projected up, begins to fall into the backdrop of one of the few views of St. Paul's Cathedral with uninterrupted sky. You can see here we're a kilometer away. This is Fleet Street, this is us, and it began to define the nature of investigating this evolving cluster in the city of London, which you're all probably familiar with, it began to actually determine a number of restrictions of how we might develop it. This, again, was a, was a small competition, pretty heavy duty though. Um, and these are our initial competition sketches. It sits next to Commercial <coughs> Union quite underused spaces around it. And it began to inform the nature of an envelope that might, we tried lots of different shapes and ideas of buildings, but what we were trying to do was pull the whole thing towards the north. So that I didn't even know how to draw St. Paul's at that time, it's outrageous. But um, it, was, it was really to talk about pulling the mass of the building to the north. And it began to define a very, very simple, flexible plan, which was what we call a northern support core that contains all of the necessary vertical transportation services. And the occupied floor, which then is south-facing, but we know the position of it to be able to make all the necessary environmental controls to deal with that. So we've got the sun and the views to the river. This talks about the two planes. I went into Bannister Fletcher for that. <laughs> it's, um, it's really talking about two profiles that never actually resolve themselves. Well, it's about 400 meters. This diagram just shows what is the smallest floor for an office building? What is the smallest floor acceptable? And it began to start capping it off around 250 meters. The nature of scooping out a public realm what, do, what does a building of this type bring? How is it actually, as we were talking earlier, what does it bring to the public realm? The Northern Support Core, simple arrangement of lifts that begins to terminate one and a half of the, the profile. A ladder frame, which is actually related to the structural composition, which begins to skewer the building into position. 
simple flaws arranged around it. And then the nature of a braced tube that wraps around it, which then has the controlled, thermally controlled envelope around the office areas. These are just codes, distillations, of what we're trying to say with a building of this type. It's really the fact that it could actually create quite a rich and diverse macro-scale language and actually have something to say on all of it is actually necessary. This is how it manifests itself in the city. This is a view from St Paul's Viewing Gallery. You see related to Swiss Re and um, what is called Tower 42, the old NatWest Tower. You can begin to see those same key macro elements appearing and then the simplicity of the brace tube to all of the occupied office areas. This is the public realm that's scooped out from its base, begins to actually inform the nature of how we landscape the various spaces which it sits immediately adjacent. This volume, in terms of a commitment, if we took the offices straight down to ground level, represents a building of a net area of 150,000 square feet. To try and attempt to quantify that value is really about the commitment that this particular client is making towards that public realm. The importance of the space as people begin to move up to all the major lobbies, the importance of this tiny diagram, which was much discussion related to this, which is what is public space? This has no walls. It only has glazing interspersed above to deal with wind. It's actually an open space that isn't closed. It's the idea of something being all welcome, managed events, and then restaurants where we called it pay, pay and eat. It's that there were a number of diverse activities that are taking place within that. This is the Northern Core Array. It's really about what one can do with just simple constituent elements of this scale. It's beginning to actually show 22 lifts arranged in one simple cassette. It has goods lifts, on-floor services. And you can see that these lifts here, these are the high-rise lifts. They don't start serving the floors until they're at level 25. The mid-rise group, which are these, start stopping off around level 30. These start dropping off this little arrangement, low-rise. What that means is that lifts are actually passing the lobby areas that are actually underused. They're just voids. So all of the toilets are actually slid across there, and you can see that where a lift becomes active, toilets move to the outside. When this core is active, they move across. When that core is active, they move across. What it begins to do is build up this layering of functional aspects. It creates an asymmetric arrangement and discord, which is actually a designed function. The idea of it being this immense vertical piazza of activities of people moving across on the northern face is about literal movement, not implied dynamism. I'm just flicking through that because really it's, it's a beautiful drawing. And it's a year off student who did it. It's immensely, immensely, that's Justin. It's amazing that the nature of how people produce work within our organization, 
how reliant we are across ages of people to be able to actually work on quite sophisticated buildings and being able to actually bring everyone into the fore at the beginning. All the emphasis changes later. All the people who have experience understand buildings then begin to take a far more primary lead as we begin to explore these things in more detail. I've put this here really just to show what happens when you spend a quarter of a million pounds of view verification and videos. There are about 130 renderings of this from different views around the city. This was part of a video just to show that we don't fall into the backdrop of St. Paul's, very similar to the spiky nature of the Wren Towers. You used to see the soft dome, all the old pictures, and then it's just lots of sharp towers that contrasted against it. I always wonder what Pret had to do on this when they put the sign. It's quite interesting when you begin to see the kind of relative clutter in the foreground and actually what is important a kilometre behind. Okay, Antwerp, very quickly. Um, it's a building um, about that engages with the, the edge of the city. It's about, and it's part of, you know, a building of this scale that helps to develop a city um, and allow it to, um, to move into its, uh, the, its next um, stage. It's a building that connects, um, and it's a building also that breaks down, again, from the Bordeaux experience, how we break down the building type of law courts again. And this time, it's a building that puts the, um, the people on top of the, um, the, the workers, as it were, and gets daylight and what have you into the, the spaces. It's all about public space that flows through the building. Um, up to these amazing dynamic roofs. Um, it was almost like dolphins, all prefabricated, brought along uh, along the, the Shelder River and put into place piece by piece. Beautiful piece of prefabrication. Um, and how it relates to its environment. It's an edge city building, and so you've got a rural setting almost, and then this extraordinary views you get from various parts of an old um, World Fair master plan of the, of the 20s. And it'll be a year to be finished, but this is how the public space will, that has been done around it will eventually engage with the building, public realm flowing through. We'll stop there, actually. Um, this was going to be a sneak preview. I don't know if you're familiar with Knightsbridge. No, I think we'll tease you. You can see it later. Well, I think a tour de force presentation, and um, I'd just like to kick off this just brief Q&A and conversation by asking um, Graham and Ivan just to say something about the practice of the office. Uh, how, do, how do projects get discussed and critted in the office? Does everybody comment on everything? At what stage does that play, take place? Is it formal? What's it kind of like working on these projects? Is it collaborative? I think, to be honest, it's changed over probably 10 years, if I was, if I was honest. It's something where Actually, the most crucial parts are the very first discussions. These are kind of trying to set aspiration and test aspiration. I think sometimes just discussing the possibilities of what something is, is actually for me the most vital part. What happens later is you have to create conceptual models for discussion. You may do it through lots of options to be able to actually get people discussing because otherwise it goes into a kind of hypothetical discussion. It could be this, it could be that. 
it doesn't necessarily present the implications of what that kind of dialogue is. I think the important thing is that there's always the opportunity to comment and it's encouraged. Um, but I don't think we see um, commentary as, well, you should adopt my idea or I, I should adopt yours, this is good, this is bad. But I think it is, it's, you know, the discussion is always, um, it's about informing, it's about getting the collective knowledge together. And there's a lot of collective knowledge. <laughs> um, what happens where, you know, you've won the competition, um, you're heading towards a sort of diagram for how the building's mm -hmm. going to be, you've got the program, you've got the site. Are there sort of formal moments when actually you present at a director's meeting or, you know, present or the unit presents or the people who work on it present to others in the office or is it just slightly different each yeah. time? Well, we have, a, we, have a form, we have a forum, but the forum is just... Um, just a convenience thing otherwise you never get everyone together um, it's about getting heads around the table um, but I think it's, it's quite funny we sort of jokingly say make sure Richard's not around when we're submitting the competition entry because actually we'll try and solve more than we can and in fact and Richard actually encourages that to a, a great extent is you know have your way and let's see what comes out um, I, in that sense it's, a, it's an extremely creative environment I think yeah, and who says creative is always fun? It <laughs> depends on how you deal with this. It's, um, I think in terms of as projects begin to go into next stages of development, the nature of language, I mean, I remember the discussions on Antwerp, that was, there were some quite tricky bits, problems you'd given us, you know. But those were quite interesting discussions yeah. because in a way it was about trying to see conceptual but it, it was actually structural clarity that you you revised completely that was quite late on in the day that was amazing brinkmanship and in sometimes well no it was good to see i think antwerp and, i think the antwerp roofs took after all now this took um i think a year and a half to actually solve i to, to make the concept work we didn't change the concept that was important um we we, we found a way of making it work and again, it was one of the team, a young guy, Ben Darris, who just said, well, what about doing this? And it some, suddenly solved the problem. And it was there, it was marrying, marrying structural integrity with architectural in integrity. You know, the high par had to be a high par. It couldn't be an almost a high par. had to be a high par. Any questions or comments from the floor? Yeah, please. Uh... I was just struck by the split in the presentation between projects in London and, and essentially elsewhere. And, and, and I just wanted um, to ask, what's at stake for you in London now? Because a, a lot of it seemed to be a question of almost damage limitation, what you can salvage from you know, the notion of public space in doing projects which are essentially you know, massively less interesting um, as, as programs. We don't tend to determine what the program is. We're actually providing entities which are actually governed before we've even actually become involved. We've had many discussions in terms of, you know, these things are just images at the moment, but we have many discussions sometimes as to, do we actually just concentrate on public buildings, low-rise buildings, buildings that actually have very, very strong connections to particular activities of cities, one has to be also careful, though, that does that mean that, therefore, the nature of how cities are evolving, does that mean you just say, fine, forget it, 
let the Americans do it, and just ignore it? Or does one attempt to actually maybe manifest something, whether it's of in as significant interest, it's still something that perhaps can contribute. And I think that's a kind of social responsibility. It's a little like saying, well, we didn't show any affordable housing, which is something that Ivan's looking at at the moment. There are many different areas that are really tough, big-scale housing, which these are really, really tough problems. And there's always this problem of cities being viewed as well, actually, we're interested in the set pieces, not the stuff that actually forms them. And sometimes you have to find a balance, I think, between where you're exuberant, where you wish to make those expressions, and where sometimes you might need to just be recessive, fall into the background, and maybe do something that has a sense of integrity within the environment that is created. And it's very important that one understands that everything that's shown is actually a product of the environment within which you're working and it's your best ability to be able to deal with those forces. I have more fun working outside London. Planning is easier, isn't it? Um, Except in Birmingham. (laughs) (laughs) There's there's no no planning at all in Tokyo. But there are very strict rules. It's just different. I remember um, with the Birmingham Library... Graham's saying, oh, thank finally, public building. <laughs> so you wait till you talk to the client. You have different problems with those sorts of buildings. And in a sense, we are. The fact that a lot of these things have come through competition, competitions abroad, they tend to be for, you know, slightly more special building types. Um, but they're, they're no less easy. I mean, you know, the, there's, there's language, culture, and there's also complexities of particularly public sector clients. And, and cost as well. They're, they're pretty cheap. Well, I think I'm going to draw things to a close now, um, just with a couple of observations. And actually, um, the, there's a wonderful phrase to describe architectural lectures, which is the show and tell, where people show their slides and they tell you a story and everybody goes away happy. But of course, within that, there are good show and tells and brilliant show and tells and not so good show and tells, and that's generally dependent. Uh, on the quality of architecture that you see. But it's also dependent, of course, on uh, the way the architecture is explained and the way the projects are described. And I found this a fascinating evening because although I was aware of some of these, uh, some of these buildings and projects, certainly not all of them. And I think there are some underlying currents which the room, despite the fact it's quarter past eight, I think uh, is a tribute uh, to an excellent presentation <laughs> with some excellent schemes. And I think that the uh, certain underlying things, the first is, I mean, uh, uh, Graham used a nice phrase about certain office buildings, conventional office buildings being apologetic puddings uh, in the city. And what you're trying to do uh, without resorting to simple embellishment uh, is to do things that actually have their, own, uh, have their own character, that are real things. And I think that the connection with some of the projects that Ivan's showing is the extent to which, uh, in the cases of both the small and large projects and the very urban ones with those tight sites and then the more greenfield sites, it's an attitude first to context and it's also an attitude towards constraint. That's to say, um, does one design in a negative fashion, which is, I think, partly related to the question 
you were asking, does one say, well, actually, if you're in the city of London, all you do is add up all the things you can't do, and that will tell you what you can do, and that's what you do do. And there it's are plenty of buildings that aren't done like that, that yeah. and they're mostly not very good. Now, alternatively, you can say that actually the constraints are not a problem, they are a condition, uh, and in a sense an inevitable, probably necessary condition for the creation of any building, the site, the client, the funding, etc., 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 and it's then what you make of that in a positive sense, so that actually what you produce actually leaves behind the constraints and becomes a thing which derives from its own strength of idea, um, from its own integrity. Um, and it seems to me that the, that, the, that the explanations and the underlying stories behind these buildings uh, all had a whole series of things in common. One was... Um, the kind of overall, you might say, public space analysis. Actually, the first lecture about Richard Rogers' work, which I've ever seen, which hasn't been Richard giving it, now I come to think about it. And Richard always gives you the Renaissance and public space and all those things, and very rarely goes into the detail of the sort of buildings you've shown, because he's actually not involved that kind of, that level of detail and the manufacturing things, because he has... Mm -hmm different canvases uh, to paint on. But I think it was apparent that the attitude to technology and materials um, has been very, very rigorous, and the question of problem-solving and then synthesising that with much more general propositions about the nature of that site, the nature of climate, and the nature of city, and certain propositions about an attitude to environmental design, this becomes a very, uh, a very fulfilling story. Um, and as a result, as it were, um, you get happy photographs, if I can put it like that. Um, well, I hope on another occasion we'll see um, Knightsbridge, because, of course, that is unlike those tight city sites where space is at a premium. And by the way, perhaps somebody would like to calculate um, British land's donation of public space, if we can think of it like that. There are two views about skyscrapers. People who hate them and who hate offices say, they're stealing my sky. Um, now, in the case of that Leadenhall Street thing, here's 150,000 square foot net, I fancy, of city office space at, what could we say, £65 a foot once finished. Let's calculate that out and regard that as a donation to all the people who kind of grind down those city streets and suddenly we'll have this extraordinary public experience, which is quite unlike anything else uh, in the city of London. And I think the other thing is, I mean, in a way where the two of you, the, the, the project where um, either of you might have been doing the competition or doing it now is the, is the Birmingham Library. And curiously enough, for a city with an extraordinarily proud tradition of firstly of municipal independence and secondly municipal initiative, I think it's a huge shame that it kind of, it, it, it temporarily, let's hope, sort of lost its will to build um, and has started, it started using constraints in a negative way rather than a positive way. Um, and maybe we could use the old library and wouldn't it be nice if we could do something else? Instead of, as they did at the National Exhibition Centre, at the International Airport, at the reinvention of the whole of the centre of Birmingham, a huge cost uh, of getting rid of the concrete yoke and the, con the elevated <coughs> concrete motorways. And in a sense, it seems to me that the library would have been the last piece in that sort of municipal jigsaw. And in a sense, would be a summary, unbuilt thus far, 
but which incorporates, I think, many of the ideas and themes which we saw in both Ivan's and Graham's particular projects. Well, on your behalf, um, can I firstly uh, thank you all, of course, uh, for coming. Thank uh, the RIBA for what's a terrific lecture program, a public program of architecture. Uh, but of course, in particular, thank Graham Stirk and Ivan Harbour for a marvellous evening. Thank